Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. A very accomplished woman once told me she was frustrated to see so many talented women on not-for-profit boards because they mostly never get paid, while men take the lucrative company boards. My guest today is Suzanne Legina, who's worked in the public and private sector. Today, Suzanne runs Plan International, a charity for girls' equality. And in this episode, she talks about leadership in terms of building momentum and the importance of trust. We also talk a bit about bees. Suzanne, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Helen. So let's talk a bit more about what Plan International does. Tell me about the organisation. Yeah, it's a really interesting organisation. It started in the Spanish Civil War and it was started in a humanitarian crisis in a, a civil context where children were being orphaned by the conflict and some reporters had been reporting on the conflict and they saw a child with a note pinned to his chest that said, you know, my name is Jose and if you're reading this, it means this town has fallen and my family is dead. Look after me. Wow. Which I find such a moving story, but uh, they went on to form what was the beginnings of Plan International by ushering those children across the border um, and starting what became Plan International and a kind of pen pal arrangement with people in Britain to send money and write letters to these children. Now, that would be called human trafficking these days. You wouldn't be able to do that. So, you know, we've evolved over time. We're an international organisation, a child rights organisation, an organisation focused on gender equality. We work in more than 80 countries and we try to tackle the root causes of poverty and discrimination. Uh, we work in crisis and in long-term development settings. We campaign for gender equality and changes to laws. Uh, we help governments do what's right for children and for young people, particularly for girls. And we try to also work with communities to really change the, the sort of norms and behaviours that reinforce stereotypes and gender inequality across the board. So I imagine it's pretty difficult for you and your team to watch what's going on, particularly in the Ukraine right now. Yes. Uh, to be honest, the last two years watching a global pandemic play out and play out really unevenly all over the world and then being also exposed to conflicts. You see the one in the Ukraine because it's in the media, but at the very moment we're speaking, I'm, my eyes are actually on the Horn of Africa where you have you know, millions of people on the verge of a famine we haven't seen the likes of in our lifetime. And I've seen through the pandemic, children are out of school 
in record numbers and we know from previous crises that many of those children, especially girls, will never return to education. So I'm seeing a setback in uh, girls' education and some of the things that we were working on, like ending child marriage or working against the practice of female genital mutilation, being set back by generations. So my team in the last two years have been on the front line with our colleagues and partners of seeing major setbacks in some of the gains we've made, both on poverty and gender equality across the world. But we've also seen incredible innovation, amazing local efforts to respond. We've seen incredible generosity from Australians and from people all over the world. If you look at the Ukraine, it's kind of oversubscribed in terms of funding by ordinary people and by governments. So I, I, I see both sides. I see sometimes the worst of humanity. I also see the absolute best of humanity as well. And that's what keeps us getting out of bed and trying to appeal to those people in the world who see things and think it could be better, it should be different, and who bother to make an effort to try to do something about it. Do you actively have to manage your and your team's mental health in coping when you're weighing up a situation in the Horn of Africa and, you know, as you you know, beautifully put the positive things that are happening in the world as well? Yeah, I mean, I sometimes think about my role as it's, it's I'm, I'm not a commander in chief. You know, sometimes I think I am a kind of cheerleader, a, a supporter, a coordinator. And I am, yeah, we have to actively manage people's mental health, their vicarious trauma. If they're being posted, for example, or deployed to situations, we go through a process of great, preparation and then support while they're in country and then also debriefing them when they return. And yes, sometimes, and I think it's quite hard at the moment for my team and for people who care about justice, equality, it feels like a bit of a hard time to be alive and to see some of the things we're seeing, setbacks in terms of reproductive rights in the US, deeply disappointing. It feels for many of us like, haven't we had this fight before and aren't we going around and around in circles? I think we have to actively cultivate and support and I kind of think about it in terms of like a plant nurture those elements of positivity that we see and I see a lot of my role as harvesting these small sparks of joy of gratitude of uh, selflessness kindness generosity in the world and then kind of blowing blowing air on it like a flame to to keep it growing and sharing it with other people, including the people in my organisation and all the people who support us. So when you say you're blowing air on it like a flame, what, do you, what does that look like in practical terms? I think a lot of the things that we're working on, whether it be gender equality, ending poverty, racial justice, climate change, have at their roots lots of interconnected elements. And there's a beautiful quote that says, you know, it's like a tapestry and it can be easy to be overwhelmed by the injustice of the world. But if you think about it that, you know, if you're pulling on one of the threads, you're helping to unravel the whole cloth, then I kind of try to help people to stay focused on the bit of the cloth that they're pulling on and that they're helping to change. It means sharing positive stories. Uh, Every week I shout out the great work that I see going on in our org but in the world. It means reminding people that the world really is an amazing place and full of wonder and amazement and humans are incredible and to not get overwhelmed. You know, I think being hopeful doesn't mean being passive. It means genuinely working 
to create a positive and different future. I just will not accept that the world as it's given to me is inevitable and that some of the things that I see in the world have to happen. I I and many others around the world believe that it can be different and we work hard to try to make it be different. One of the things that I grapple with probably every day is what to focus on in terms of making that difference. And you you rattle off, you know, a dozen global challenges. And it is easy at FW, at Future Women, to kind of go, we want to solve this problem and this problem and this problem. And what I say no to is probably something that bothers me more than anything. How do you go about that? It sounds to me like you don't do that. You just go, right, I will do as much as I possibly can. Yeah, I mean, I I use a kind of motto. I, I feel like we have to do what we can where we can. I try not to get overwhelmed by um, the whole picture. I feel like, what's the next thing I can do? How do I keep building momentum? I try not to be perfectionistic about this because I know that we will fail and try again and our efforts are going to be more dynamic and cyclical. So I, I try to focus and focus my team on what is the next thing we can do and how do we start to build? I'm much more interested in momentum and energy. How do we build a little bit of energy for that? How do we get that moving? How do we get started? Uh, what's something we can do in the next 24 hours? What's something we can do in the next week? What Where do we want to be in a month's time, a year's time? And just get people moving because I think the, mo- the movement itself generates its own energy and you can collect great things along the way that keep you moving in the right direction. And then the motto I use is I, I always try to think about myself and our organisation that we have to be Uh, a model, a mirror and a magnet for the kind of world that we want to see. So sometimes we're a magnet for others. We're kind of, people are drawn to our work and I feel like that's our job is to pull together and convene people who want to work on this thing that they're excited about, that they've seen us doing, that we can do together. Sometimes I feel like we have to be a mirror back to the world of like what, what could be different. And sometimes I think we're trying to be a model, like practice Uh, in our way we treat each other, the way we create our organisation, the way we do our work, an example of of a different way of being, a different way of doing things, a different way of leading that's not all about, you know, from the top and in a hierarchy and all about power and control, but is about something much more expansive, much more humane, uh, much more positive. What you said earlier about leading by creating momentum is such a, a great insight. How, what sort of leader would you say you are? Accidental. I think I'm an accidental leader. I was sure you were going to say collaborative. I was going to put I, money I am, on collaborative. I, am. <laughs> I mean, I think you have to know about me that I, I'm accidental. In this. I am not like I'm not an expert. I'm not that kind of leader that knows all the answers. I don't. I think my strength lies in being able to convene people, bring people together and then ask good questions and create enough trust and confidence together to be able to do or take some action together. That, that, that perhaps is my strength. I wouldn't consider myself to be the smartest person in the room. I'm not the most experienced. I don't have the deepest knowledge. You know, and in a way, that is my strength. I don't pretend that I am that. So then I, I'm interested in how do I kind of cultivate Um, all the wisdom that exists in the group so that we can do something. And that perhaps is what I can do. I think the point you make about trust too. I mean, it's very rare that I I sit here and interview someone about their leadership style uh, and they say, 
I create a climate of trust. And yet, um, I think really great leaders are excellent at creating that climate because you, if your team trusts you, you can lead them into difficult spaces and through difficult times, correct? Yeah. And look, my team have done, you know, I think a lot of what we're doing is practicing together, doing really hard things. And to do that, we have to be able to be free to muck it up and to make mistakes and to know that in the end, I will support that. I will back that. I will take responsibility. And as long as we learn, as long as we're learning from that and really harvesting those situations for what we can take forward, I'm much more interested in how do we cultivate the leadership of everyone in our organisation. And I look, I think volatile situations like the one we're living in, they don't have time for a command and control structure that goes all the way up and all the way down. You have to trust your people that they're closer to the people we work with, they're closer to our customers, they're closer to the work, that they will be better placed than me from where I sit, perhaps to see the innovative solutions, maybe to see the way forward. And I've got to back them to do that. And it doesn't have time. We don't have time to run it back up the flagpole to me and then run it back down again. I've got to just trust. And and the best things that have emerged during the pandemic have come from the front line and the people doing that work who've had to find a way to do things when you, you can't do them in the old way. So I've been really reaffirmed that leaders are across the organisation and everywhere. And lead, my job is to help people practice that muscle and get confident and feel safe enough to be able to take their initiative and run with it. Okay, so as the accidental leader, tell me, Mm -hmm. can you name one or two of the things you got wrong in your leadership time? Yeah, uh, uh, lots of things. (laughs) (laughs) I think that I, if I think about, you know, I've been a CEO for five years and I think one of the things I've been reflecting on is that A lot of what I had to do was in crisis. You know, when I came into the role, you know, we had financial issues I had to deal with or we had issues. And I I kept waiting for some time that would sort of stabilise or a return to sort of stable conditions. And I guess what I've come to see is that crisis, if you like, and the opportunities that come with that are part of the job all the time and that... My job is to see it as an opportunity and to look for ways to learn, grow, adapt and do hard things. And maybe I kept trying to find an equilibrium that doesn't exist and that has caused me a lot of pain and grief. So now I'm trying to practice being a bit more, you can see me moving my body now. I'm trying to be more flexible. I'm trying to be more like water. I have to know when to hold my ground and when to be yeah, a bit more fluid and, and create a different kind of rhythm for myself. I think that's a big lesson for me is that actually there is no sort of status quo. The change and the constant change is the job. So stop fighting it and start feeling with it and learn how to dance with it and teach your your staff how to dance with it too because that is the future. It's volatile and uncertain and it's ambiguous So we're going to all have to learn to dance and move to a different kind of rhythm. And that's been one big lesson. And maybe the other one is always that the people are maybe the hardest and they're also the best part of the job and that organisations are only full of people. And if you look after the people, they look after the work. 
and that I've sometimes focused on the work and forgotten that the people doing the work are who I should be really looking after and caring about. And I've had to really rethink that during the pandemic. And people have returned that to me in spades in the way they've shown up, continue to show up and how much they've given to our purpose and our cause. And that's maybe the other thing is uh, I've, I've wavered when I've lost sight of the big picture about why we do what we do. So a lot of what I do is kind of like I'm a, I'm a bit of a broken record for who do we serve, why are we doing this, let's think about the bigger picture, let's not focus on ourselves. It's the children in the communities and the girls in some of the poorest places that we serve. And that is it, that brings so much perspective, Helen. I mean, the advantage of a global organisation is when I feel bad about how things are for me or for us, I have people for whom it is so much worse off that I can look to and be inspired by and I can have a perspective that allows me to go back up and sort of see things from a different point of view and maybe, um, yeah, allows me to see with a bit more clarity, you know, just where our experience sits in the global effort. You know, a lot of best practice management at the moment is about empathy and uh, spending more time to understand what your colleagues are going through, particularly when you're working remotely and your, your relationships are via Zoom. But, I mean, it must be difficult for you if you've got a team that is living in a first world country, plenty of medical uh, help, all of the benefits of living in Australia, and one of them's having a bad day, and yet you do have young girls living in abject poverty. Do you ever feel like saying, oi, what about those children in Africa rather than, you know, our problems in Australia? Or have you managed to work through that everything's, you know, relative and the individual, you know, has to be treated, you know, according to, you know, their circumstances? Look, I sometimes do want to say get a grip. It's often to myself. Let, let me not make it about my staff. It's it's to me. <laughs> and some of the things that I feel, are, you know, I have to remind myself. But I think it's actually the gift of an international role like this is I do have people and they do inspire me. Like those people continue to show up, those girls in abject poverty continue to show up to advocate for themselves, to try to talk their families out of marrying them off at a young age or to call out violence at school or um, to make their way to school despite how difficult it is. And I am I am genuinely inspired by their grit and determination, the way people continue to do that. I don't underestimate because what people are living, it's all, it is all relative. But I do sometimes try to remind people of that bigger picture and just how, and I guess it's a cultivation of gratitude, isn't it? It's just being able to put into perspective, yes, things are difficult here, but we do have access to vaccines and many of our colleagues didn't. Yes, it is hard, but we do have a medical system that largely works compared to our colleagues in PNG where it really doesn't. Yes, you're right, it's hard and lonely and hard to do X, Y and Z, but it's nothing on this. And just keep that connection and just help people to kind of, it's almost like um, those images that you see from the space station of the Earth. It's like you've just got to go up a level and just look below and get a bit more of that bigger picture just to put into perspective your lived experience. It's important. It's part of the whole tapestry, but maybe not to centre it as the only experience. Thank you for that. And I think it's um, 
you know, it, it'd be like I should just call on you um, intermittently <laughs> throughout the year to come and have a Please chat do. to the team. Um, look, a lot of women do connect with the concept of purpose and working in an organisation with purpose. I mentor many and often the idea of working in a not-for-profit comes up. Conversely, a lot go into not-for-profits and then, you know, are a bit disappointed that it's still they're still run by human beings with all of the challenges that comes with being a human. What motivated you to take this role and has any of it kind of shaken you because, you know, it hasn't lived up to the ideal of working in a charity? Yeah, it's a really good question. I wanted to do this job after working in government for a really long time and working in politics for a really long time. And, you know, I had worked, uh, before I came to plan, I'd worked as the chief of staff for an entire term. I was pretty burnt out. And I had spent the last year, you know, trying to make things not be in the newspaper, like managing issues. I'm really good at it. But I just, it's, it's, kind of, it's not very creative. And I felt like, you know, the next thing I do, I really was always interested in social justice. I just kind of thought, I now know how change happens. You know, I do know how legislation's made, how cabinets work and how the political system operates and how you can work with stakeholders to create change. I felt like I want to spend the next part of my job trying to get issues I really care about in the news, get them on the agenda. So that's how I came to plan. And I was drawn to it because it had this focus on children, young people, and on girls in particular. I'm the eldest of four girls. And it had a campaign called Because I'm a Girl, which was all about, you know, the barriers and discrimination that girls experience by virtue of being girls. And that really resonated with me. My sisters had babies and I I had been trying to have a baby for 10 years unsuccessfully. I had a a stepson, you know, from my marriage, whom I loved, but I wasn't being successful in my fertility journey. And I kind of thought I want to put, you know, I really thought I can be a kick-ass auntie. And I kind of thought, well, maybe I can use that auntie energy, you know, for some of the world's poorest and most marginalised children and young people. And I really felt like I could be on their side, you know, bringing what I know to that challenge. And it went on, you know, a year later, I ended up having a baby on my last ditch, you know, IVF attempt. And all I was born a girl. And in a way, that just, that reinforced for me my actual mission and the purpose of plan. I I really want for all children what I want for my own children. And everywhere I see that that is not the case, I feel compelled to do what I can. So I was drawn by that powerful mission that hasn't changed. But yes, look, there are things about working in this sector that I find frustrating. Uh, It can be slow to move. Weirdly, organisations set up for social change can be really slow to change themselves. That can be very frustrating. And you wouldn't, I guess you would know this, but charities in Australia are very highly regulated and are very compliance focused. Um, you know, we're a $60 million organisation, but we have a lot of compliance that we have to meet across the board. And it's Some of it's essential, obviously, to give confidence to our donors and to the government for whom we would do work. And it's it's about our quality assurance and our standards. But I don't think when people think about working for for purpose organisations, they're thinking about working in highly regulated environments, which is what they often are. And that can come as a bit of a surprise to people. And it's not what they expected. I do feel like I work with some of the smartest and most interesting people. 
And I do feel like the purpose and the why of what we do matters a lot. But we don't have money to pay people. So sometimes, you know, I have to think about like, well, how do I create? How do I be a magnet for great talent? Knowing that I can't offer you the most amount of money, what do I have to do in terms of the culture or the experiences or the opportunities for development that are going to get at least some of those talented people to want to spend some of their time working on this cause with us. So I feel like the challenge for a leader is harder because you don't have all the levers of the private sector to get that incredible talent. But I do feel, nevertheless, the people who come to work here come here with a mission. They've often come and sacrificed money. They don't care about that as the only thing that matters to them in their life. And they do incredible work. And I find that really rewarding. And I love my job. I feel, I pinch myself every day that I get to do the work that I do because it does allow me to feel like, you know, when the that kind of overwhelm is happening, I don't feel like I'm a saviour, but I feel like I'm just one person, but I am doing my little bit over here um, with other people who are as, as equally motivated. So with so many issues on your plate and so much passion for what is going on in the world, how do you set boundaries for yourself and for your family? You know, all those metaphors about fit your own face mask first, you can't feed from an empty well, they are so true. I mean, if you, and I, I really mean this in a deep way too, like you have to eat well, sleep well, exercise, rest, rejuvenate, spend time with people who lift you up, do fun things. The thing that this work can do is kind of deprive you of joy. You can get pretty caught up in a one dimension of the world that almost discolors the world into sort of grey lead. So you have to deliberately seek out wonder and awe and amazement. You have to like feast on the things that give you joy and energy and you have to make that part of your discipline and your mission because if you are not well, someone once wrote to me, you know, in my staff group said, when you're strong, we're strong. And that really stayed with me. It's like, I've got to be strong, but then to be strong, I have to model. That means taking rest, means having holidays. It means being honest when I'm not coping well, when I'm having a bad day. And it does mean having to manage all of those things and helping have those conversations in the staff group as well. You know, I see that you haven't taken a break. You seem really short. And I know that when I get really short, it's sometimes because I'm cranky and I'm at the end of my tether. How do you have those conversations? Say, do you need a break? Do you need to go and do something that's fun and restorative for you? On the weekend, I did a wellness retreat with my best friend and I discovered something that I'm really late to, but which I just think is the absolute bomb, which is restorative yoga, which is basically stretching a little and resting a lot. <laughs> it's my kind of yoga. I didn't know no. such a thing existed. I think everyone should be doing restorative yoga. And interestingly, this yoga teacher said a lot of the yoga teachers she knows are only doing restorative yoga because we are, we are, we are exhausted after the last two years. We are like exhausted ones. And the thing we need in the world is more of that kind of restorative experiences. And so I would say find the things that are restorative and do those things for you because they're as important to your job as doing your job. I've actually just re-enrolled in my restorative yoga class. I, I completely agree. It's like this secret of the yoga people 
that they don't tell you that there's this whole yoga class that goes for an hour and a half, and actually it'd be good if it went longer, where it's completely doable and enjoyable. I know. I just thought I was like performative and I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it hot. I couldn't do it cold. And now I've found the kind of yoga that I think, you know, I need. So I, I really do think that we need, and I do feel this, women especially who've borne the brunt of the work during COVID, and we've seen that massive gendered element to it. We are so tired. I am tired. Everybody's tired. Everyone I talk to is tired at a level that we it's going to take time to restore from. And so finding those things, and for me, it's joy, is kind of what I've been cultivating this year because I felt like the last two years have been a little bit joyless and I feel like we need more of that in the world. I think everyone listening to this can hear why people join uh, Plan International to work with you. And that momentum and that sense of trust in your leadership um, would be great, I am certain. I want to talk, though, about bees yeah. and how important bees are in this whole story. So I've got, uh, we've got uh, some beehives at home. We have our own honey. But I also think you know, bees are so interesting. I love metaphors. And so... You know, bees, obviously, they're pollinating. But, you know, they when they swarm, they don't, they stay put and they send out these, like, bees who go looking for where they will move to and then they come back and they dance it to the others and they have to get the agreement of the majority of the swarm before they move. Right. Right? So they'll stay there for days until they've convinced the majority of the group that this place where we've found is the right place for us to all move. And I love that idea of leadership, you know, that, you you know, what I have on my computer in front of me is from Black Lives Matter. It's kind of a motto of the leadership of the Black Lives Matter movement. It says, lead with love, no ego, high impact, move at the speed of trust. And I kind of think that B metaphor is the kind of move at the speed of trust. You've got to convince them. You've got to influence enough of the people to want to move before everyone is prepared to go. And I think... I by no means think that I meet those, all of those objectives, but it is what sits on my laptop every day as the kind of beacon for me of the kind of leader I'd like to be. I absolutely love that. I knew that answer to the B question was going to be priceless. I want to just talk a little bit more about and to finish off a little bit more on the enormity of the task that you have. Girls' equality uh, is central to what you do. What would success look like for you as the CEO of Plan International? Yeah, I I go back to this because of my girl's story. So the campaign started because there was a director who was in Nepal at the time and they were visiting a school. And then as they were leaving the school, they met a, a woman with her child and she clearly was of school age but wasn't in school. And uh, she said to this woman, oh, you know, why is your daughter not in school? And the woman looked at her oddly and said, because she's a girl. And I think, you know, for me, success would be that we wouldn't have to say that because I'm a girl would not be a barrier to participating fully in every aspect of life and decision-making that um, in plan we always say we want people to be able to learn, lead, decide when they, if they marry, who they love, when or if they have children, that we want people to thrive and so I kind of think success would be that, that all children, regardless of their gender, would be able to live, learn, decide and thrive. How can we help? 
get involved. Uh, you can support us financially. You can be a campaigner with us. Look, to be honest, one of the things that would really help us right now is help us put some of these like hidden stories on the agenda. I, I, I can't get someone to write a story about famine because who wants to hear about famine in Australia? And yet, you know, I, I feel like that is my job is to try to shine a light on some of those stories and some of those really powerful human stories because the truth is we can do things about it. Our governments can, we can as individuals. There's no reason in 2022 that we should have 50 million people on the brink of a famine. That is a solvable human crisis that we could do something about. So, you know, get involved. We've got a fight famine campaign that's not just planned, that's the entire sector at the moment is launching a major campaign to put pressure on our government to uh, release funds. So get involved with that campaign if you want to. I think, you know, for me, there's a kind of, I think Australians, and I think the last two years have made it hard, right, because we've been locked down because of a pandemic. We're an island and we can think very in a very isolated way. What would help me is take a bit more interest in the world, open up your eyes, look outside of Australia, take a, a keen interest in what's happening both in our region and in the world. Think about the things that you're passionate about. It doesn't have to be a plan. Find something you love and care about. Find an organisation that's working on that and give them your heart, your effort, your money, your energy, because we all need that and that's how we're sustained. Suzanne Legino, it's been absolutely fantastic talking to you. Congratulations on all the hard work and all the achievements to date. And um, I look forward to checking back in on you and through the FW website, having a bit more of a chat around what is happening in terms of famine and what's happening in the rest of the world. Thank you for talking to me today. Thanks, Helen. The Future Women Leadership Series was presented by Helen McCabe, Executive Producer Jenny Goggin, Sound Production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.